Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 14 of the In The Bin Rugby Pod. I'm your host, Andy Wumble, joined by my self-isolating partner, Mr Patrick O'Donoghue. Hello. How's self-isolation, sir? Shit. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's a necessary evil. Well, very true. Made, made easier for our podcast by the fact we never do it together anyway. Well, no, I mean, we, we've, we've been self-isolating from each other for years and it seems to be working really well, so. <laughs> yeah, you're still infected with something, though. Well, uh, just a great personality and being an all-round great <laughs> guy. <laughs> I mean, that wasn't where I was going, but, you know, that's fine. Well, you know. So you've got to be wary of uh, everyone's positivity in these dark times, so yeah, I'll let you have that one. Yeah, don't be mean. Hashtag be kind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's one well. Then I'll tell you, we went to a, uh, we went to a pub quiz and the, uh, the, the guy liked really crude uh, names for teams, like very rude things. And so during that time, someone's team name was hashtag be kind. And he went, ah. Oh. And then he read the rest of it and went, unless you're a... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that was fun. That was nice. Yeah. Right. So um, as you've probably gathered, there isn't actually any live action for us to talk about due to ongoing world crises. So we're just here to fill the void. With some general chit-chat, a little sort of benign musings, we're going to run through the little bit of news there is around what's going on with the seasons, Uh, and then we're going to do our Team of the Six Nations, sort of belatedly, because we didn't get a pod out last week, gave us time to really fine-tune it, uh, tune them, Uh, and then Paddy, I won't take credit for it because I really haven't been involved, has come up with a special Pandemic 15, Uh, and then... Yeah, we might see where that takes us, see how long we go for. And then um, if any of you have any ideas or any suggestions for things you'd like us to get content out about in the foreseeable future, given what's going on, do let us know. Otherwise, we might just put something out every week with us discussing random rugby, nausea, banter and games and things that got us into the sport, games we've enjoyed, seasons we've liked, all of that sort of stuff. So let's say we will start with the pandemic news which is that if we start, go country by country, the RFU have cancelled all rugby below the premiership for the season. Uh, They still haven't come up with, and they're going to be having meetings around how that's going to be decided for promotion and relegation and who's going to get what. Um, We're then going to look at um, how uh, uh, the premiership, they don't know how that's going to finish yet either. They're going to look at that in the future. Um, where Pro 14 is cancelled or postponed indefinitely and the um, final has been postponed. I think the top 14 is postponed. EPRC have postponed the European uh, semi-final, quarterfinals. So everything at the moment is on lockdown. With the Pro 14, the final has just been cancelled. Yeah. It's not even postponed, it's just gone. So I imagine what, you know one knows what they're going to do, but you just wonder if they're just going to write the season off, especially with what's gone in Italy and then just work out how they place their European teams at a later date. Um, the European Cup, you don't know if this continues. They Again, they might just have to can it because there's just not going to be enough time for everything to get done and then just start again next year. It's, you know, it's, there's bigger things and bigger fish to fry than this, and it is what it is. Um, and then the <laughs> only other point after that is that is on wages, I think, uh, unless you've got anything on the postponing of stuff at the moment. No, no. I mean, the only thing that kind of stuck out for me on the postponing is that clearly the Premiership are just desperate not to do it. 
Um, and I, I think, you know, the, the sooner they kind of follow suit with everyone else and just say, look, it's postponed until further notice. But I think really, I, I don't see how the season is going to be fitting. It kind of brings in a slightly different point again that we've spoken about before with how packed the rugby calendar is now. You know, there isn't really any wiggle room. And I think if you combine, first of all, just being sensible about what's happening in the world at the moment and what is the most appropriate thing to do, which is no rugby, then how little time there is to pack stuff into just from a scheduling perspective and then throw in the whole thing about player welfare and we're supposed to be reducing the number of games these top level players are playing. I don't really see any other option for anyone apart from just to, to shelve it all and you know, as everybody keeps telling us, I'm getting a little bit sick of the word already, even if it is appropriate. These are unprecedented situations. Um, and so I think, you know, it needs to be it needs to be handled as such. And it's not ideal. You always want to see particularly the leagues and the European competition, you know, uh, in terms of the Champions Cup come to a conclusion. Um, but, you know, as, as you said, that's kind of being overridden, actually, by the um, kind of the state of things at the moment and the state of play, how we find ourselves. So. I just think the sooner everyone kind of just bites the bullet and says, look, forget it. We're just going to focus on doing other things, the better. Yeah, I can't really disagree with that. I think it's not necessarily... I think the football on one hand are going to try and do something because they, they're sort of a bit of a bigger sport, but it's not going to be the end of the world for rugby if this season is just lost. It'll be upsetting for the Six Nations, especially with what's happened with France. You don't know whether they're going to be able to finish that perhaps at the start of next season, but I think all the league seasons, if they're thinking that this is going to run into June, you know, Glastonbury has been cancelled. These big gatherings of people are being cancelled up all the way. You know, they're thinking about the Olympics, which is July. I just, like you say, I can't see them finding space in a calendar to fit in the necessary amount of fixtures. And it will just be one of them with a little asterisk by it. The last time this happened was another unprecedented event. The second world war was when things were cancelled and it's one of the, it's affected pretty much every country on the planet. The small matter of some rugby competitions isn't, like you say, the be-all and end-all. So if this season happens to be cancelled, you don't crown a winner and you just start again next season with all these competitions. Um, it'll be interesting in terms of what they do with um, squads and things and obviously people are moving and transfers and when that all comes into play. But um, the other one, I think, and the more important issue is, I say with Teams, I think Tigers, if players have taken a wage cut, other clubs are asking people to take a wage cut because they get the majority of their money or a lot of their money through gate receipts and match day income. And I saw a thing from the, I think it's um, Mr. Bradbury, who's the guy at Gloucester, because people were asking about the CVC money and why aren't you spending the CVC money? And he said that quite a lot of that was already invested and if you think it takes about a million pounds a month to run one of these clubs, that CVC money would actually be eaten up excessively quickly after three or four months um, if, if, it was, if it was that that was being used. And then they don't see any benefit from it. So they are asking players to take a wage cut, which is hard. And I'm not sure, you know, some of the bigger names might well be able to get by on a, on a reduced wage. It's going to be very difficult for the young players or the, or the younger sort of squad players you just don't know what else they're going to do because you really don't want to see clubs going under. I mean, and it's and again, it's not just at the Premiership level. You think about, we were talking about it before, about all of the, the sort of lower clubs, even if it's just down to your average village club, are going to be losing thousands every week from not having minis, juniors, first, second 15 vets playing. It's it's going to be all up and down every club in the land. Yeah, it's, it's quite... 
well, this must be pretty frightening times for a lot of players and staff, particularly at the lower levels. Um, you know, I don't really have many concerns with a lot of the larger clubs doing it. I know that they're certainly not running as effectively as they should be. And we know that because Exeter, you know, they're the only club that didn't record a loss in the last financial year. Um, and I don't mean this to sound harsh, but, you know, I get a bit irritated about clubs operating beyond their means in search for success. You know, this may be a stark reminder of the urgency needed to try and operate within your means. Um but a lot of the players, I think 25% pay cut, you know, it's not it's not exactly going to harm them. Um, but it's when you start going to the lower earners and then particularly down the divisions where it's not just the players or the staff taking pay cuts. It's how many of them will still be able to exist, you know, depending on how long this goes on for. And I think that's that's really worrying for people that are fans of rugby and as I said, quite frightening for the people that are in that position that are connected to those clubs and that spend a lot of their time there um i think with the clubs it's uh sarries wasps worcester and gloucester that on friday announced but they pretty much expect every premiership club to announce that again apart from exeter um but exeter they're, they're kind of a law unto themselves at the moment with, <laughs> with how how well they're doing on and off the pitch um I think some of the other things are that just need kind of ironing out in terms of if the seasons get cancelled are the kind of promotion relegation aspects. I don't think it affects Saris in any way because you know they're down. They've been relegated. They're down. And if they go down, someone has to come up. And I know that some people will probably get a bit excited about it, but we all know Newcastle are coming back up. They've won every game this season so far um, in the Championship. So I think even that's reasonably clean. And unfortunately for other clubs, I think you just have to say, you know, it's kind of, it's void. And you start again with the same teams that are in your league at the start that were, um, that started this current season. Yeah, and with the... <laughs> Then that means no one goes down. Then the problem is, then you have the um, the problem of so if Newcastle are going up and Saracens going down because it's already agreed that Saracens go down, then you can say if you look at the table, say in um, in the Championship, bottom of the table are Yorkshire and they've won no games. They were definitely going to get relegated. They've won no games. They've lost all fourteen games. They've got a minus five hundred points difference. So what you'll then get people saying what well, they're definitely they were definitely if Saracens blah 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 then you look at the Nash, um, National One um, and that's a bit closer but Richmond are seven points clear so do they then say well look we're it's going to be very difficult with how you do it because especially not necessarily you get below say National Two and you get to your Midlands One you know London One all of the sort of the further you get down but even teams, I went to watch Roslyn Park, who was second in National One, and they had Paul Doran Jones there. He was, you know, they've got, uh, uh, what's his name, Henry Cheese, Harry Cheeseman, who used to play for Quinns and Bath. You know, they invest in a lot of players, and, you know, getting up to the championship is a big thing for them. So the RFU, and not just the RFU, I'm assuming the Welsh Premiership, the Scottish, Irish, the French, they're going to have some decisions to make. Um the Ealing thing where their managers, their CEO or chairman's come out and said they'll, they'll think about legal action if they don't get promoted. He said something about, you know, they've got a game in hand, which is against Yorkshire Carnegie. They've still got to play Newcastle. It's like, yeah, you've got to play Newcastle, but Newcastle did beat you with a bonus point at your place and you've got to go there. And they've won every single one of their games. 
and Ealing have also got to play Cornish Pirates again, who are only one point behind them and who beat them when they played them the first time. So Dean Richards gave a very nice statement, which to summarise was basically, I think you're barking up the wrong tree at the moment. There are much more important things for you to be worrying about than this. We can get onto this in a few months' time, but right now releasing things about having a legal challenge just seem a little bit preposterous in the current circumstances of what's going on. Well, it's just, it just leaves a bit of a bad taste in the mouth as well, isn't it, when you're, you're threatening that kind of action, given what's going on. Uh, look, any time that there's an unprecedented event or some like, kind of an anomaly, which means that you're going to have to make decisions that you don't normally make, whatever decision is ultimately made is not going to suit everyone. There is always going to be someone or some club or a group of people that are going to be unhappy with it. Now, I think unless in every single league there is a someone who's mathematically not possible to be caught for promotion or cannot survive, which is never, not well, it could happen, but it's incredibly unlikely. I think the only way you can get away with it is you swap Saris in Newcastle because Saris aren't there in terms of their performance on the pitch. It's a penalty, which is you are being forced to be relegated. And I think that makes it different to any of the other promotion relegation situations. As I said, if one goes down, I think one has to come up. But apart from that, I think, you know, the probably the fairest thing is just to, you know, say, look, that's it. Everyone else starts the same. And it is going to be really harsh on some clubs, as you've already mentioned. Um, but the, there isn't an easy solution or one that's fair to everyone. There just isn't. So you just have to try and be the most kind of logical and fair and sensible that you can be. And I can't really see, from my personal point of view, outside of, of that as a, a plan. No, I agree. Um, and I, again, I would reiterate, if, if you get a chance, if you live near a rugby club, uh, when they reopen again, do go down and support your local village, town, team, you know, not just the professional teams, because they will be hurting at the moment and they will most definitely want some help and support because uh, they will be losing a lot of money uh, with what's going on at the moment and you don't want your local team going under. Anything else on the uh, unprecedented event? No, which, it's not for me, mate. Which, by the way, is definitely the name of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's going to have to be, isn't it? Oh, dear. Right, so um, if you remember back to times of yonder when the whole news stream wasn't taken up with the pandemic and you could look at Twitter or Facebook or Instagram and not just see self-isolation and pandemic chat, um, the Six Nations were taking place. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> yeah, most of it. <laughs> and it had been a really good tournament. Uh, lots of good games, lots of good performances. France back, not quite back. It was all bubbling to a nice finish and that has been bought... Uh, to a premature end but it still gives us a chance to discuss the players we've enjoyed watching and and do a rundown of what we thought was team of the tournament so we'll go number order we'll start at uh, loose head um and i'm there's only really one person that stood out for me uh quite an easy choice uh roared onto the scene uh having spent i think about four years ago he was playing scottish national one or something having had some bad injuries uh rory sutherland has been an absolute find. He's, he's been fantastic. As you say, It's I think when you're looking at a team with a tournament, it's rare to have, you know, one, well, not maybe not rare. You often maybe get one absolute standout. But when we're looking at it, we just have one standout and not really anyone else that we thought warranted too much of a mention. 
Um, and that's not to take away from Sutherland, because I think even if there were other people that had come close, he was so effective. And I don't think many people really expected that from him. As you said, it's not, you know, he's not kind of a, a new player or has been in absolutely scintillating club form and everyone was expecting maybe this is going to be the tournament. You know, it's, um, it's not, you know, journeyman's a bit harsh. But as you say, you know, he's really been around some of the some of the other leagues. And he was, without a shadow of a doubt, the best man in his position. And some of the games Scotland have played, and you see the shove on at the scrum. And I just haven't really seen that from Scotland a lot. And I think they're indebted to Sutherland for getting that momentum in the scrum. You know, that's how a pivotal a good prop can be. And if he carries that kind of level of uh, performance on for Scotland, he'll, he'll, he'll have that shirt for a while. Yeah, and it shows the, the value in having a good foundation, which Scotland are, are slightly coming away from their harem scare uh, stuff under under Gregor Townsend. So we'll probably get a mention later, but Fagerson at, at tighthead, along with WP Nell when he plays, who are two very good tightheads, mean you've got a solid platform. And as England found in the World Cup final, a solid platform goes a long way. <laughs> so, and and it just gives you that anchor. Um, and yeah, and it's, you know he made a great break against England as well. He, he made some yards. He's really. It's not just his scrimmaging. He's good liner operator. You know, hit makes his tackles, hits his ruck. He's one of those players that you need in your side that is that is solid, but in every aspect. And you know, it probably means that you can have your Richie Watson in there doing a bit more sort of out wide, uh, diff- different roles when you've got someone so solid at, at loose head. Uh, right, Hooker. There's a few options. This one wasn't quite as as um, easy. I think the two main standouts for me were. Marchand, uh, the French hooker, and uh, Jamie George. I also give a little mention, although I don't think he's in again in the team, to BG, who in his first tournament as captain, I thought led Italy quite well in, in difficult times and, and, and played reasonably well, but I don't think he's quite at George or um, Marchand's level. I gave it to Marchand just because I thought he, he did more... He did a lot of the easy stuff well, but he also did quite a lot of visible things, turnovers, you know, lots of run, good tackling... But I could easily see a place for Jamie George in that side. Yeah, I, I went for George. I don't think it was, you know, a, a tournament for for hookers. Again, that all still sounds a little bit iffy, doesn't that we say sounds that? Sounds like but, um, a pay per view show. <laughs> um, but I just think George. You know, I've probably made this point before on previous pods, but for someone who, when there were a lot of calls for him to break into the England side, it was really because of the running lines and the handling and everything he offered outside of the basics, as well as doing the basics well. But I think he's brought not only his basics to a level, which is comfortably test class. He is consistency. I think is brilliant. And there are a few people I thought were a little bit unfair on Jamie George um, at the world cup, because I think it's now just taken for granted actually that he's got such a base level of performance that unless he's doing something spectacular every game, people tend to forget about him. But that's one of the best compliments you can have as a hooker because when hookers aren't working, it is really obvious. It really sticks out, whether it's line out, scrum, or if they're not really offering anything else around the park. And I think, although it wasn't, again, as I said, his most spectacular tournament, I think he was quietly the most effective hooker in the tournament. Um, So I I think he, he really deserves it. I think with with George, especially with I mean, England might miss. Don't think they're going to know what they've got till it's gone with George Cruz a little bit. Um, George Cruz, yeah. He's, you about, I thought we were about Jamie George. We are, but I'm. Let me finish my point. No, I thought, that, I thought you just jumped from hooker to lock. No, is that <laughs> is that is that George and Cruz work so well together in that line out 
yeah. that it is you know England's lineup is religious regularly the best or one of the best in the tournament in terms of reliability and that is because again George hits his arrows which is why although Luke Cowan-Dickey is, is improving and I think he's pushed George I still don't understand the cause for Cowan-Dickey to start over George because George like you say he's, he's such his he is almost the, the weirdest compliment you can give him in terms of if you again if you go to a different sport if you go to like football is you need your consistent 7 and 8 out of 10 player all the best sides have them the Manchester United side had say Gary Neville um, those Arsenal sides had Ashley Cole you know the, the Claude McAuley and those you know this, people who turn up and put in solid decent performances every week and you don't notice them because they're just always very good but I say I went for Marchand because I think he's doing that for France now. He looked very good. His line-out was solid. France's line-out was very good. Their scrum was decent, apart from a little wobble against Scotland. Um, and again, he picked up and offered around the park as well. So I can't argue with either of those going in. I, I think it, they, they both offer very similar skill sets. Yeah, you finished throwing up at the mention of Manchester United and Arsenal players. It was mainly just the Arsenal players. Yeah, it's horrible, mate. I couldn't, move, I, we'll I, move on quickly. I couldn't, I couldn't think of a Spurs example. This is because we're not consistent. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, tight head. Um, I think uh, Howis was probably having a very good tournament and, and could possibly have, have been mentioned in this breath until the Scotland game. Um, the poor Italian tight head got absolutely bent double by Sutherland for an entire game and ruined any chances he have. So you're looking at the sort of the two what have become the usual suspects in uh, Sinclair and Furlong with, I think, a special mention to Fagerson, who has come back to form and fitness and is sort of nailing down that three shirt for Scotland. And where it was always going to be Nell's shirt, and he was very solid, Fagerson offers that solidity in the scrum and a little bit more around the park. But it's between Furlong and Sinclair. Again, I wouldn't really argue either way. They're both very similar players, good ball players, solid in the set piece, um, and offer a lot around the park. Who did you go for? I, I went for Sinclair, um, and I don't know whether I'm just being harsh on Furlong now because his level was so high for so long. And I did think he had a good tournament, but I think you know it's just between Furlong and Sinclair. And although they are similar in terms of they they offer things around the park, I think there's a bit more power from Furlong and a bit more dynamism from Sinclair. Um, plus, you know, sometimes Sinclair's hands are like watching a you know a nine or a ten. It's ridiculous. Um, but I think just the slightly extra impressive work that's, that came from it would have been Sinclair. So I don't think, you know, it's not like there was loads in it, but I, I went for Sinclair shade in that one. Um, but but I'm glad you mentioned Ferguson because, again, it feeds into what we're saying about Scotland and their scrum and their props because it just looks really good for them. And he was very good, Ferguson. Yeah, so that gives us a front row if we do... We're unanimous on Sutherland. Yeah. I'll give you Sinclair at tight head. We'll take Marshawn at hooker. Yeah, I'll, I'll let you have that. There we go. Um, now, I'm going to do the second row as a whole because I think it's quite easy just to get two in there. Uh, Bernard LaRue and Maratoji were both absolutely fantastic all-tournament. A couple of good mentions underneath for other people, but I can't really think you're going to argue with those two in the engine room. No, no, that's. I think that that was the easiest pick of the entire team. Even when I was putting mine together, I had absolutely no doubt that yours was going to be the same I haven't actually seen that many. Maybe it's because it has been disrupted. But, you know, the couple I have seen, every, everyone else has had LaRue and Itoji. Um, but they they were both, I, I think, again, by distance, the standout locks of the tournament. Um, and when you consider some of the other locks knocking around, 
it just shows quite how good they've been and consistent. And you know, I think they're the top two tacklers as well. When you look at locks, um, you know, but it is it's, it's so much more than that. And they're not only two of the, you know, not the best in their position in the tournament. They were two of the best players in the tournament of any position. I thought. Yeah, um, they both sort of lead their defence a little bit. Toji's line speed and just motor is is endless. And he has really pushed on and is... It's almost as endless as his mouth. Well, true, but but that whole... He's one of those players that when he played for the Lions, everyone loved him because of that. He's It's a bit... Again... Do you, I didn't. <laughs> it, every sport, team sport, tends to have players in some teams that you hate, but if they're on, their t- if they're on your team, you know you would love having them on your team. Just yeah. because of the way that, that they are, and Larue, I, w- def- I, w- I wouldn't not pick him, but there's a, you know there's a lot of players where you don't like them when they're playing against you, but when they're on your side, you love them. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's what he is. Yeah, but I don't get that with the Toad. I don't love him. I still think he's a complete twat. But you know, I'd pick him if I, you know, if I because he's a very good player. And if I wanted to win a game, I wouldn't not pick him because he's a twat. But I'd still, you know, even when he's playing for the Lions, as soon as just, the mouth goes, and I'm just like, you are such an asshole. <laughs> I mean, don't hide your feelings. Let it all out in this time. The emotions are high. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, so maybe I'm just a bit, a bit of it miserable because I'm, I'm locked up. I mean, Larue again, his defence was phenomenal. He really, his work rate again was huge. They're both very, very solid line-out operators. Very annoying around the park, getting in lots of breakdowns. The other two mentions I had were uh, James Ryan and, and Cummins from, uh, Ryan from Ireland coming from Scotland, who I thought were both had solid tournaments in that area. Um, but yeah, it was really easy to pick Larue and Itoji. It really wasn't that much of a difficult decision. I probably would still, you know, in terms of the other mentions, put Win Jones in there. You know, he was playing the tournament last year, and I think there aren't many players you can see that because we know Wales aren't quite functioning as they have been, and we know the reasons why because it's different style of play. You know, you just see the effort. Win Jones is putting in to try and make things happen and to try and drag the other players around him to the same level. And for someone who doesn't often look the most mobile, actually, some of the work that he has done with carrying the ball into the tackle and offloading it, I thought was really impressive from someone who doesn't necessarily do that all the time. And when things aren't going that well around you or as well as they normally are, and you've got all that weight on your shoulders of the captaincy and being the uh, reigning uh, title holders off the back of a Grand Slam, Although, it, you know, it wasn't this tournament he had last year, I think, given the circumstances, I actually think that Wynne Jones still had a very good tournament. Yeah. OK. I'll let you have that. Right. Into the back row now. I was very uh, harsh in my judgment on the back row in that I was picking people in the positions they played throughout the tournament. So if you played six, I wasn't going to move you to seven. If you played seven, I wasn't going to move you to six. You're going to stick... Uh, I don't want to. I want to see people play in the positions that they were played in. So, my three blindside players uh, to choose from were Cross, Omani, and Richie. I mean, Omani basically had that shirt apart from the first four minutes of the first game until um, Doris got injured um, and then came onto the the blindside. Richie, man of the match performance against um, France, and was an absolute terrier. Um, really good against England in awful conditions as well. He's been re- really up to his game this year. And uh, Cross, who I've given it to, again, just part of that very consistent French back row. They aren't too flashy. Um, they're very uh, sort of rugged players, all of them. They just get about and do their job. They wouldn't look out of place in the sort of 1990s sort of team with you know the headbands on just getting down and getting stamped on a lot um, and again he does a lot of the dirty work that allows the others to play 
good tackle rate, nuisance at the breakdown, good line out forward, just a really good back row operator and helps balance that side. Yeah, I think sticking, oh, well, I picked cross as well. Just absolutely, you know, I had said maybe stander as well, but I think it's fair given that it was, you know, got less minutes and you got fingers, um, you know, to, to actually play at six. So that's fair. But cross, I just find the whole French back row kind of a real revelation. You know, it's something that we were looking at and analysing before the tournament as potentially an area of weakness. And that wasn't necessarily coming from a talent perspective, but just the inexperience there. And it's so new. And some of the gnarly operators, you know, back row is, is it's a position of real wealth uh, around the Six Nations. And the fact that pretty much the entire French back row where it stood out largely throughout the tournament was great. And Cross is... Yeah, as you say, I mean, you were kind of reeling off. You know, somebody like, I thought this was particularly good about a player. It's basically everything a six should do. Everything he was good at. Um, and so I think, you know, absolutely he was he was the best uh, He was the best six. He's that old school sort of, I mean, the, the comparison you'd give is the very best at that is sort of Richard Hill. Um, it's sort of kind of what Omani sort of does for Ireland is, is that dog just gets in and out, doesn't do anything flashy. Often. Now, Marnie has the odd special play that, that you see, but quite a lot of it is dog, is the sort of Alan Quinlan used to do it for Munster if you want to, you know, those sort of players who just go about their business, get kicked in, get beat up, take an absolute bruising, but when he's not there, you'll notice that he's not there compared to actually you're not quite sure that he's actually in the team sometimes because he's just doing lots of stuff in and around the pitch. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, six sometimes it is. An unheralded position. And it is, it's only when they're not bloody there. And you go, oh, do you know what? <laughs> do you know who we, could, who we could do with in this game? Yeah. yeah. Right, seven. Um, again, I had three front runners. Um, again, the Scottish and the French options. Uh, Hamish Watson uh, and Olivon. Olivon's been fantastic. And also, he led very well. He had that burden of being a young, sort of new captain. Um, he's the top try scorer in the tournament. He, I think he's done very well in terms of managing the game as a young captain. He seems to be quite getting a decent rapport with referees until that final game when his team just decided to explode. Um, Hamish Watson is back. You know, we, we love watching him. He's that little ball of just angry Scottish muscle that bounces around. The game against France was phenomenal. He got turnovers. He ran well. He tackled well. He got in over the ball. And then the other one of the three is Tipperick, who in a not quite a successful Welsh side has looked excellent his open play the style that um, they want to play now really suits him he also operates the line out very well and he's continued his tackle rate and getting in over the ball and doing everything you'd want I think you've got three excellent candidates and I obviously I wouldn't mind with any of them I went Watson but I can easily be swayed look I went Tipperick but again if you picked any of those three I would have absolutely no complaints I think the Mish has definitely got to be the pod's favourite Scottish player. We always, you know, sometimes we talk about Scottish players and we're like, oh, we really like this player, but we, we, our tone seems to change a little bit. We talk about the Mish, we're like, oh, the, you know, the Mish, and he's back. You can't and not like him. He's just he's great. He just he just looks angry and really, oh, he's just a great player. Um, and yeah, Olivon again, as you say, not only a great tournament, but being captain again and being so young. But Tipperick, I think. <sighs> It's, as you say, it's the line out, it's the tackle count, but then he's got that extra bit of wheels. And we saw it in the England game. 
when it comes to the added element of his ability in open play, his awareness when he's running, he doesn't have that kind of madcap forward found a bit of space. You know, he looks around like a back. He's sensible with his running lines. He knows where people are. He's got speed and intelligence as well as getting up the tackle count, getting involved in the breakdown and running a line out. Um, and as I said, in a, in a slightly misfiring Welsh team, I think that was it was him standing out like that that kind of just, just gave him the edge for me. Yeah, so we'll go with Cross and Tipperick on the flank. Eight was quite easy. Um, special mention to CJ Stander, who did have a very good tournament, um, and uh, Ben Curry, who grew into being an eight. No, not quite the standard of these two yet, but considering where he was at the start, I think his improvement was exceptional. But it's got to be Gregory Aldrit. He, again personifies that sort of old school style of that French back row. He's a number eight. He makes the majority of their carries. He makes them into heavy traffic. He makes hard yards. And again, he's he's a very good defender. Just seems to to do everything you'd want from a number eight. Yeah, you've got zero argument from me there. Again, one of the easier picks uh, in the team. Fantastic tournament. The carries, the carrying work he was getting through was... And I think in the modern game where we see players that carry a lot, he just kind of felt the impact of him running and he really wanted to carry. And I think particularly in a French side where we question their resolve and sometimes their desire and their ability to handle adversity or play for a full 80 minutes. I mean, he just kind of threw all of that in the bin because he was just calling for it all the time and he was always ready for another one and he made it count. Um, it was, yeah, just a really incredible effort, I thought, from Aldry. Easy, easy decision. So that gives us a pack of Sutherland, Marchand, Sinclair, LaRue, Itoji, Cross, Tipperick and Aldry. I think that'll do pretty well. Thank you very much. It's not bad, is it? Three good line-out options, good carrying, uh, decent handling. Excellent, I'll take it. Now, again, I think another pretty easy pick uh, at nine. Uh, a man who makes me makes me make more involuntary noises than any other man I've remembered in the not too distant past. Um, yeah, and I'm not ashamed. No, at all about it. Oh, Anton okay. Dupont. Just he'll just do. Oh, I... <laughs> <laughs> oh, if only we had a studio where we could just capture that noise and just play it every now and then. Oh, I mean, I mean, I could, but I'm not sending it to you. Um, <laughs> yeah, the only other person I had on this list was was Ali Price because I think his sort of change in style. He he sort of just toned down the madness and sort of aided that control with with Hastings in the Scottish side but DuPont has been I mean he had a poorish game against Scotland and he still put in one of the best cross kicks you're going to see for a try it was pinpoint and he set up the try against England he's just been wonderful throughout the tournament you you can't eulogise about him enough at the moment He's cut above. I mean, there aren't many players I'd rather watch in world rugby at the moment than DuPont and he's, he's just great and you know, yes, again, he's he's got that ability to just pull something out, you know, out of nowhere. Whether it's a crossfield kick, whether it's a show and go or a break, you know, he's. We know that nines are always going to be a bit nippy just because of the typical size of them, but he seems to have an extra level of speed and extra gear. Um, but also, it's just that stuff we always talk about tempo and speed. You know, the way he shifts and gets around the park to the ball, he's just buzzing around. He's just there. So, you know, he, he gets quick ball to these players as well as having the ability to do something really special. And I think in a game when it's not all going well for you, again, to be able to then produce something in those circumstances, I just think he's excellent. Um, and again, a clear, clear choice for team in the tournament. 
I think the only other player that I just want to kind of mention is I actually was really impressed with uh, Tomas Williams when he played for Wales. Um, wasn't, you know, I think Gareth Davies didn't exactly look as good as I've seen him look before. Um, but I thought whenever I saw Tomas Williams, I was actually quite impressed with him. Um, and we know that he's been in really good club form. Um, and I, I would have stuck with Davies if fit to start. But um, he's got real competition for that shirt now, I think, off the back of those performances. Yeah, good shout, good shout. Ten, I've got three. Um, Hastings, Ford and Untermac were my sort of shortlist. Um, Hastings is great. All the speculation at the start, it must have been really hard for him because the whole of the start of the tournament for Scotland was around the absence of Russell. But I think what you've seen is that what Glasgow found is that if you give Hastings that run of games, he doesn't quite have the same magic as Russell but he doesn't make perhaps as many mistakes He's and the style they're playing he seems to be suiting it very nicely and he's grown into it and he can still make a break he looked very good nailed his kicks well as well uh, George Ford has arguably been the best 10 around in the Northern Hemisphere in terms of playing behind a good pack for a couple of years he's done wonderful things at Leicester given what was going on there and again his picking of a pass and his controlling of that England team was fantastic but I ended up going with Entomac because he controlled that French team. He just put a nice set of reins on that team and just controlled them. And you knew how good a job he was doing when he wasn't there. That's the sign. You know, you, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. All that we were saying earlier. Entomac was doing such a good job that the moment he went off and they bought on, um, oh, what's his name? Bell, Bell, and no, what's his, anyway, the other, the blonde, the, other one. the blonde nutter. Um, yeah, bleach blonde. Yeah, he. Uh, you noticed what you didn't have, and they just didn't have the control that Entomat brings. And I think, as much as I think Ford has played excellently, if Ford isn't there, Farrell slots in, and England will cope. I think just again for the way he played and how good his tournament was, and just the level of importance he brings to that French side, I gave it to Entomat. Yeah, I mean, I gave it to Entomat straight away. Uh, I thought he was wonderful absolutely wonderful to watch and you know it's kind of put to bed the question that we had had maybe about a year ago uh, when we were still talking about what was the best partnership and would Dupont and Untermat work together because maybe they were a little bit too mavericky as a combination at nine and ten but it's it's kind of a bit similar to the Jamie George situation I think you know what we've seen is that Untermat has retained his ability to make a break uh, to chip over the top to make something happen out of nothing but what he's added um, brilliant control, marshalling of the back line. And I think his kicking from the tee has improved. He still can have the odd wobble, but he's had a couple of games where he was just nailing stuff. And I think once you start bringing up those other parts of your game, it really does then, you know, highlight and it allows you to reap the rewards more when you do do something special. It's not a question of, oh, this is what you get, good and bad and inconsistency. He's really brought it together for himself as a player, but then also for the French as a backline in a team. And I, you know, I was really quite seriously impressed with Antimac. It's Jalibert. Had to have Jalibert. Absolutely yeah. nutter. And the other thing I'll, I'll put Dupont and Entomat in this, I think that they don't get enough credit for actually is their defence isn't bad. It, it's not, isn't bad. Dupont makes some good tackles and Entomac, he's not hidden like some tens. You know, you, you'd think him and Ford are both quite slight and you don't see, you don't see him often run over or anything like that. I think he, he's not, he's a hard little bastard. You know, he's not going to, he's not going to take a backward step, which is something, especially, and the only other thing, and I've heard it mentioned before is I really need to know I think his hair is like Lego hair because it just, it doesn't change. Like he's played a full 80 minutes at 10 
and he just doesn't look like he's sweated and his hair is still perfectly set and it's weird. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's also, it makes me a little bit jealous. <laughs> yeah, all around the block and I've got a bit of a sweat on. <laughs> he's there playing 80 minutes of test match rugby and he looks like he hasn't done anything. Oh dear, right. Um, do you want to go, because should we keep the wingers together? Should we do centres first? Yeah, do centres first, yeah. Okay, so now, I, I was going to cheat at 12, but I'm not going to. I was, I was going to try and get someone in at 12 who's been played the whole tournament at 13 but I'll stick with my rules of playing people in the positions they've played in so my two options for 12 were Sam Johnson and Owen Farrell both of whom I think have had good tournaments Parks is, is good but hasn't quite reached the heights that he's he's been at before um, Aki was a bit mm, and uh, France played Fiku there for a little bit and then uh, Vincent who I do think Vincent will be a hell of a player but for me it was between Johnson and Farrell and I went with Owen Farrell yeah, I do think Fiku did some good stuff. Um, but he played on the again, wing a little bit as well. I'd yeah, um, but I, I, I went with Farrell. I think Sam Johnson was very good, um, but it's it's just a little bit of a level issue, I think, at the moment, when you look at Sam Johnson and Farrell. And yeah, I you know, again, I, I thought Farrell was pretty good throughout the tournament. Um, and although, I, and I think sometimes with Scotland, it's not, Again, I'm not trying to take away from Sam Johnson, but after having centres that were doing kind of worldy bits all the time, and it's kind of fallen back a bit, I think I, sometimes I get a little bit overexcited when I see the Scotland centres doing doing well. And although Sam Johnson's been very good, it's just not quite that level of Farrell. And again, Farrell has to, as well as we said with Olivon, he's leading that team. Um, leading and- it, his defence is really good. Obviously, the kicking speaks for itself. And he, he would help, him and Entomac controlling a game would be ridiculous. Their positional kicking would just, it should be very, very good. Um, now, outside centre was tough. Um, I'll give a special mention quickly because he only played one, one or one, two games to Harris, who I thought is a very solid operator at 13. He's not going to make this team, but he, he's come in for Hugh Jones and he looks very good at, at 13 for Scotland. Uh, I thought Robbie Henshaw had a good tournament, seems to be slowly getting back to his best form um, but then it was between Manu and Nick Tompkins who both for me had excellent tournaments uh, you can see how England used, used Tuolangi really well because um, sometimes they go behind him or, or they, they they use him as a decoy runner and as a, a target man very well and it really puts defences on their heels now I know you're going to have gone for Tompkins I would have probably gone for Tuolangi but I think you can't really argue with with what Tomkins has done particularly. I think he's got most metres, he's got most defenders beaten. It's been a hell of a breakout for him. Um, and I bet Wales are pleased they found his gran. <laughs> yeah, I think, again, it's a, it's a tough one. If you ask me to pick a side tomorrow, I'd pick Tuolagi over Tomkins. And maybe it's a slightly more emotional choice just because, you know, having seen Tomkins play for Saracens, uh, I thought he really deserved his opportunity to play for Wales. And he really hit the ground running. And then he's had a game where it's like, oh, you know, he had a few people on his back. Actually, that wasn't very good. He wasn't able to do it again. Uh, It was only against Italy when he was really kind of making metres. But then to come back and he just looked a constant danger. I thought, you know, whenever he got the ball and he was able to eliminate some of the mistakes he made in Wales, uh, Wales' second game. And it was just that, that threat, I think, that made me kind of lean towards Tompkins over maybe the, the, the power and balance of Tuolagi. I, I won't argue. I'll, I'll let you have that. So we're going Farrell and Tompkins in the centre. 
Winger this, was... this will surprise you. I actually feel slightly bad for not picking to like, like, which, I, which I, never. I don't think anybody would have thought that would have happened uh, in the last few years. Now, Winger was a little bit thin. Um, yes, it was. I think Wales had Adams. He got injured. Liam Williams came in, played a game. Uh, North wasn't very good. Uh, Stockdale is not on form. Uh, um, England had um, Watson play a game. JJ play a game. Daly play a game. They just sort of. They all did very well in the games they played there, but it's just tough for one game, isn't it? Yeah, you need a bit more consistency. Um, as I mentioned before, I, I don't. I think Kinghorn and Maitland are good. Maitland had a very good game against France, but they don't. You know, they don't set you on fire. You're not going to pay to go and watch them, particularly unlike say when he's fit, Darcy Graham. So that leaves me with I've got Johnny May. And then the other place for me was between... I think Johnny May was, was excellent when he played. His defence, his all-round game. He scored those two fantastic tries. Um, it was then between Conway, who I thought was very good for him. And I think as a spe- as I thought Bellini was really good for Italy. He always went forward. He counter-attacked really well. He made some great breaks in most of the games. Um, now, I know you're going to go for Conway. Uh, but I just thought I'd give Bellini a mention. Actually, and while I'm on it, the French wingers were interesting because Thomas was considering what we've seen from him before was pretty non-existent. Fiku played a game. I think if Rattas had played another game, he might have got in. He was very good. But again, injury took him too soon. If Penno was fit from the start, I bet you would have Penno in. Because, you know, we see him come back for one game at the end and already look good. And after playing so well last year as well, I thought thought we were robbed a little bit of not being able to see Penno this year. But uh, yeah, I, I would go with May and Conway. May, we know how good he is two tries that he scored in the France game kind of sum it up but you know Conway he just he's, he just looked a threat he's really solid under the high ball I thought something that we see from Stockdale before which we haven't been seeing but Conway's been doing is that kind of kick over either your opposite number or the fullback or both actually the pace the spin the judgment the chase um, I just thought he, he actually looked a really accomplished player. Um, and you know I'm a big fan of his, and I think he's deserved his chance for a long time, and I think he's taken it. Yeah, so that's May and Conway on the wings. And then full-back, I've got two. It's between Hogg, who, outside of a couple of drops, has been really good. Uh, big, big, big if, isn't it? But he's again, as, cap- as, as captain, he's come in, and he seems to have led that team well. Um, his injections from full-back have been excellent. Um, and then uh, Boutier, who is, the, is again, the sort of thing that France haven't had for a while. He's just a good, solid fullback. Does his basics, kicks the ball away, can hit the line if needed, but takes his high ball, makes his tackles, kicks his kicks, and has just helped that team look solid. Yeah, and you've already kind of alluded to some of the selection problems that France had that's been a bit chop and change for them, um, especially after the Rattas injury, because Rattas was looking really good before that injury. Um, but Boutier, I mean, he would take it for me. I, you know, we're more familiar with Hogg and you could see that he made a really good comeback in the France game for Scotland. But I can't really overlook that that's two potentially game costing errors in consecutive games. And Boutier made no such mistake and also looked threatening at, t- threatening at times. And so I, I would give it to Boutier. I'll just have a little special mention for Hayward, who I thought came in and played very well for Italy when he... When he came back in. So that gives us a backline of DuPont and Tomac, Conway, Tompkins, and uh, no, Conway, Farrell, Tompkins, May, Boutier. Decent side. Happy with that. So it certainly wouldn't have been the backline I would have predicted uh, before the tournament as well, no. coming out as our team in the tournament. I mean, 
considering we mentioned quite a few outside centres, Vakatawa didn't get a mention, which coming into and, the tournament. And how much seemed, have we spoken about Vakatawa? Well, he was he's on been such been good incredible. Form. He's been incredible. Again, you thought Finn Russell might get a mention at 10 before all of this happened. Um, Stockdale on the wing, Teddy yeah. Tomer as a winger. Yeah, it's. Josh, Josh Adams. Um, you know, all these kind of players, they're just, just not there. Right, so. Then you've you've had a very busy few days, clearly, and uh, in it your has been busy, thank you. Uh, in your downtime, uh, again, given the uh, the unprecedented situation, uh, <laughs> you decided we'd we'd have try and make like, a little bit of lighthearted of it, a little bit of a joke. You've come up with a pandemic fifteen sort of. Yeah, it was. It's, it's, it's the fifteen I thought would be least likely to catch uh, the the coronavirus or COVID nineteen. Um, so it's, yeah, the 15 least likely to get 19. So do you want me to, um, where, where are you going to start? Well, I'll start, I'll start with the props. I'll start with, I'll go kind of the same way, kind of, you know, front way, work my way to the back of the scrum and go down. Uh, Castro Giovanni and the beast as my props. Now the beast, I don't really think needs too much of an explanation. I mean, clearly he just can't get infected by anything. He is immune. He is the beast. Castro Giovanni is kind of the opposite, really. You know, he's basically called in sick to go to a part, a pool party. You know, players don't really do that very often, not at his level, but he's just a bit of a party animal. And so I figure that given the situations he's got himself into, he's probably caught everything, built up like self-immunity. His organs have herd immunity. And so because of that, Castro Giovanni makes it in for very different reasons to the beast as my props. I mean, that picture of him in Vegas when he's supposed <laughs> it's to... It's amazing, isn't it? Just... Wasn't he partying with some footballers or... There were all sorts of celebs there and he's just there, isn't he? Topless with his gut out, sunglasses on, on the edge of the pool. Um, it is, yeah, it's special. Nice. Um, Dylan Hartley was my hooker because it's that kind of social distancing aspect of... He spent so much of his career banned that he wasn't around players as much as other people were, especially people that were in the side as long as him. So that was an easy one for me for Dylan Hartley at Hooker. Locks, we know that they are just a lot of the time the most grizzled, hard bastards. So it's more of a just nobody can fuck with them, not even the virus. So I went with Paul O'Connell just because I love also Paul O'Connell. Why not? And Martin Johnson. Seems fair. Um, that would have been a hell of a lock partnership, by the way. And then um, you actually mentioned uh, my... Uh, blindside flanker earlier on Richard Hill and again it fits in with the kind of narrative about them of you know he was the kind of archetypal player for me growing up of incredible but you barely notice he's on the pitch half the time and I just thought well look if you can't see Richard Hill you can't infect Richard Hill so Richard Hill escapes on the basis that he's just he's just never seen he's the unseen Um, we've got Richie McCaw at seven because he might get it, but he would persuade the ref or any kind of medical professional to change their decision and say, actually, you don't have it. That would happen. The flankers of invisibility. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, we've got uh, Harry Ordinary. Uh, <laughs> Emmanuel Harry Ordinary. I can't even say it. I've said Harry, Harry Ordinary too many times. Emmanuel Harry Nordicky. Harry Nordicky, thank you. Um, because as we were discussing, that his social media just involves him drinking. And he must have the most sterilised set of innards known to man. So we get him in there. Drinking wine, obviously, as well. French. Right, into the back line. Austin Healy, because if there was any person in existence that was too irritating for even the pathogen to infect, it would be Austin Healy. So he... You could play in a lot of positions, but he goes there. He's kind of a virus on his own, really, isn't he? Well, exactly. Battle of the viruses. Uh, Finn Russell at 10. Um, 
already in self-isolation. He was actually ahead of the game. I think he knew what was going on. You know, I check his uh, phone for any Chinese international dialing codes. Um, and then we've got Farrell inside centre because he never touches anyone with any part of his hands or arms anyway. So he's he's, he's already mitigating the risk. Doesn't even wash because he never touches anything with them. Again, ahead of his time. He's ahead of his time. He knew it was coming. That's yeah. why, you know, no hands, no arms. You can't get the virus. Um, O'Driscoll at 13 because he just sidestep it. Just, just no chance. No one could get within two metres of him anyway, so that's fine. And then it's a similar story with the wings. We've got Habana, who's just probably the fastest winger I've ever seen. Just too fast to catch it. Shane Williams, so evasive, dancing all over the place. Not still long enough. And then maybe slight change in tack, but... Again, on the basis of some of the Six Nations stuff this season, we've got Hoggett fallback because he actually can't catch or keep hold of anything. <laughs> Poor Stuart Hogg, man. Gets given the captaincy of his country and all it's going to be remembered for for the first season is that he kept dropping stuff. Oh, man. So I hope everyone's taken that in the right spirit because yeah. I'm, not, I'm not taking the situation lightly, but I just thought I'd have a little bit of rugby-based fun with it uh, while I could because it's dark times sitting on laugh, my own mate. with the laptop. I did like, I didn't get to watch it, but I did see that World Rugby and the Rugby World Cup put on their Facebook, I think it was on Saturday or Sunday, they replayed in full the whole 1991 quarterfinal between England and France. And and I, I caught, I went on YouTube and watched the highlights of it. It's just a different game. It's not, it's not how, it's not rugby as we watch it now. It's just... Well, it's the same. My dad was watching a football game from what had been the old first division in the, the mid-70s. He just said, Jesus, he said, it is a different game. You just couldn't. So, you know, also, like, even just think of the playing surface that they're playing on. It's, it, just would, it just would not be allowed these days. And he said, they're also just kicking seven shades of shit out of each other. And everyone's just kind of getting up and getting on with it. Um, and we certainly don't see that in football these days. But yeah, I was looking because I thought, uh, I, I've seen, I think it's on, um, it's on uh, YouTube, is the Leicester Munster Heineken Cup final is, I think, available in full to rewatch. So we could perhaps watch that at some point. Um, no? I've, I've, not eat, I've not eaten back bacon since. <laughs> Hand of back. Um, yeah, so I was trying to think. I have watched it. I've been down a few little YouTube holes just to fill my need for a bit of rugby. I watched the... Uh, there's a good sort of 15-minute highlights of New Zealand-Australia from 2000. 39-35 to New Zealand in an absolutely cracking game, if anyone wants something to watch. Um yeah, that'll be it from us for today, unless you've got any more waffle. Well, no, I just, I think it's very remiss of you to leave out Munster, Northampton in that list of games to go and watch if anyone's bored. That's decent. Yeah. Oh, Northampton, Leinster as well. That was a great final. I was going to um, leave that out. They, they've, had, they've had enough coverage. But yeah, we will we will endeavour to come back uh, next week. Uh, do get onto Facebook and Twitter at In The Bin Rugby. Give us any suggestions, anything you'd like us to chat about, talk about, anything you recommend we watch. Perhaps we can have any documentaries or series or anything around rugby for us to chat about. Get over and like and subscribe in all of the usual places. And uh, yeah, we hopefully will be back with you uh, same time next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>